Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Planorama podcast, brought to you by the Ryerson Planning Alumni Association. Planorama is a fun, easy-listening, interview-style podcast where each episode we'll be chatting with Ryerson planning grads from all age ranges, programs, and backgrounds. We'll be talking about everything from favorite planning buzzwords to favorite field trip memories. And I'm your host, Ashley Patton. episode, I chat with Blair Scorgi. Blair is a senior planner, urban designer, as well as the business development director at SVN in Toronto. He holds a master's degree in architecture from McGill University, specializing in urban design, as well as a bachelor of urban and regional planning from Ryerson University. Blair is a registered professional planner, as well as a member of both the Ontario Professional Planners Institute and the Canadian Institute of Planners. He is also an adjunct professor at Ryerson University School of Urban and Regional Planning, and was formerly the acting chair of the City of London Urban Design Review Panel in London, Ontario. On this episode, I get the opportunity to chat with Blair about his work experience, schooling, field trip memories as both a student and professor, along with some pressing topics in the Ontario planning scene, including a discussion on what prevailing neighborhood character means. Hope you enjoy my chat with Blair. Thank you so much, Blair, for um, being on this podcast. Um, if maybe you just wanted to start off with some introductions, where you're working, um, when you graduated Ryerson, and from what program. Sure. Um, thanks, Ashley. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, so, yeah, my name is Blair Scorgi. I am um, the Director of Business Development at a company called SVN Architects and Planners. It stands for Sinclair Van Ostrand Architects and Planners. Uh, and I'm a contract lecturer at uh, Ryerson University School of Urban and Regional Planning. I graduated from uh, Ryerson's Bachelor of Urban and Regional Planning program in 2007, a long time ago, before <laughs> before progressing on to do a, a master's, a post-professional master's of architecture specializing in um, urban design from McGill University. I guess one of the first questions that I uh, I like to ask is, um, what did you think planning was when you were um, first in your undergrad versus what you understand it to be today in, in professional practice? Well, I, I'm, I'll just preface this by saying I feel very fortunate to even have known what planning was uh, in time for me to apply for my undergrad. So many of my peers, my friends and my colleagues um, got into planning much later in life than I did uh, and frankly weren't aware of it as, as, as being a profession. Um, so I'm, I'm, you know, when they were in high school. So one of the things that I'm really um, happy to see is is the Are You a Planner type events that Ryerson's planning students are undertaking, and ULI is undertaking similar sorts of initiatives to to get the word out in in you know local high schools and and uh, inform people about the planning process and the profession and what it's all about. I think that's fantastic. I myself had a bit of an unfair advantage in that um, I kind of grew up. Uh, in uh, in and around the industry, uh, and so I had a fairly clear idea of what I was getting into prior to undergrad. Um, I think that's always given me a bit of a, a leg in, if you will. Um, it's made my life a little bit easier over the years. I've also sort of generally had a fairly clear sense of of what I want to do with my life, which I, again I think I'm very fortunate to 
to be able to say that. And I, I don't think that, you know, I, many people who end up in planning sort of start off thinking that way. So, I, I mean, I think, to be completely honest with you, um, actually, I think I had a fairly good idea of what I was getting into. Um, I decided in grade 11 that I was going to get into planning and learned soon after what urban design was all about and how it was going to become this emerging thing, a subset within planning, that it's something that's always existed in some capacity, but it's being formalized in North America as sort of a sub-discipline of this profession and others. Uh, and my father is an architect, and uh, my mother was a teacher and focused in urban geography, and it was sort of, for me, it seemed like, you know, the perfect thing. It was, it was sort of, it allowed me to look at you know, rational thinking and decision making and planning and design, but at sort of a, a broader scale than architecture. Uh, and it sort of really married a lot of interests that I had in, in cities that I got from, you know, growing up in the 1990s and early 2000s from video games like SimCity and others. So <laughs> I, I think I think to answer your question, the very um, long winded way of answering your question is I probably started off with thinking it was a little bit more like SimCity. And, uh, as we all as do, as we all do, and I, but I, I think I had a, a slightly better understanding of maybe what I was getting into than others, and and that may have helped prepare me in some respects. Um, one thing I didn't anticipate that I sort of learned in my career was really, and this is just to speak to the difference between the roles of academia and and work, is you know I sort of got exposed to different aspects of the policy and regulatory framework, but I never really got through the process of really understanding and digesting a zoning bylaw and, you know, really determining how I was to read it, interpret it and understand it and, and understand how convoluted it can become, especially in, you know, the city of Toronto and, and understanding, you know, the minor variance process and consents and plans of subdivision, plans of condominium, all these sorts of things. I, I sort of got exposed to it at a very, very high level at Ryerson without doing any kind of a deep dive into these policy documents. Um, I sort of felt like I had an understanding of what I was talking about when I graduated in reality. I think it took me a good few years to really sink my teeth into those types of documents and really fully understand them. And and truthfully, I'm still, I, I'm probably not, you know, I, I wouldn't consider myself a zoning expert. There are still many things about <laughs> you know, the, about that particular kind of document that I'm still learning. And of course, every municipality is different and getting exposed to different sorts of jurisdictions and, and regulatory frameworks just kind of, you know, it's, it's, it sort of reignites this continuous learning process. Um, so I, I, I thought I was an expert in policy, you know, and then I realized I didn't actually know anything about it. Uh, <laughs> so that was something. And then, you know, I got exposed to, I, again, I sort of think I, I think I knew at the time, um, you know, what what uh, consultation and engagement strategies looked like and the types of things that would be undertaken. I, I, you know, I think I had it in my head. It was, well, you know, if we follow this process, we'll develop consensus. You know, they, that's kind of what we we're talking. Well, you know, this is all about consensus building. Well, there's a there's a there's a common good and there's consensus and we'll find it if we just go through this process. And then, of mm -hmm. course, you get exposed to any given number of individual projects and you realize it's not quite so simple. So, um those things were the sort of big learning curves for me. The other thing was just, um, you know, the, the whole sort of the political side of planning, uh, I think, wasn't something that I fully appreciated as a student. And just how how much not that we're influenced by politics, but how significant a role poli politics plays in, you know, in our work in approving legislation and policies and 
and the, you know the appeals process, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I think I, I had a bit of a naive perspective on those sorts of issues when I was a student. Some of those things I'm still very much learning. I'm not. I would not consider myself an expert in in some of these things yet. Mm-hmm. No, those are really good points um, that you made, and I think uh, as you mentioned, having the opportunity to have both your parents kind of in that field is is really interesting. And in that um, from a young age, you know, being just exposed to discussions around the dinner table around that. And so one uh, one uh, fun question that I like to ask is, what's a planning buzzword that drives you crazy oh. or that you think? Is overused or misused? This one always gets some some good yeah, answers. Yeah, you know what? And this sort of brings me back to the consultation piece. You always sort of think mm. that some of these terms are just sort of common knowledge, and and you don't think you're you're speaking in you know jargonous terms. And then you get into a public meeting, and you have people ask you questions like, "What are you talking about? Contextually sensitive? What does that mean?" <laughs> speaking, yeah. Speak in plain language, man. Yeah. <laughs> and so. <laughs> advice for for the students who are transitioning into into planning always be cognizant of who your audience is and what you're saying and and don't take anything for granted i have made that mistake several times where i think i'm speaking in layman's terms and i take mm. things as being common sense and common knowledge and they truly are not they truly are not and and we need to be mindful of that one of the terms that drives me a little bit crazy if i can say that at at this sort of current moment is is this it's not a word but it's this sort of notion of prevailing neighborhood character or prevailing character. Mm. i've seen a few tweets about that from mm-hmm. you it's been grinding my gears a little bit <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah, spe- yeah specifically with the you know front door um debate and well, yeah that's just that's like, a tough one it's it's not a very easy thing to define and and character is not static. Neighborhoods are changing. Their character is evolving and changing over time. If we look back to the history, we, you know, if, if we look at the history of any given subdivision or neighborhood, we'll see how they've evolved over time and how they continue to change. And mm. and now it's 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 almost as though this notion of prevailing neighborhood character is being used as a defense mechanism for NIMBYs to say, no, we're drawing the line here. This is the established character. This is what it's always been. This is what is unique about this neighborhood, and we're threatened by anything that that contravenes that idea. But the reality is that neighborhoods are constantly evolving and changing. They're not intended to be static. They're intended to be stable, but um, mm-hmm. but not static. And um, and I think there are many things beyond, you know, very specific things like the placement of a front door, or you know how high the front porch is, or what type of house is it? Is it a detached or a semi-detached dwelling? That, you know, like I think there's some room for flexibility there for things that are slightly different to coexist mm-hmm. harmoniously with one another and not really compete with in a negative way, but sort of augment and sort of reinforce that character. And unfortunately, that it unfortunately sort of there are some groups that are using this argument of prevailing character to say no, no nothing different is appropriate. Everything needs to be exactly the same. And so that's been driving me a little bit crazy mm. because we're in the midst of a housing crisis in Toronto. And, you know, it's 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 quite easy for somebody to build a very large monster house detached single family dwelling in a neighborhood that's surrounded by other monstrous single family dwellings. But it's very difficult for people to build things like duplexes or triplexes in those same neighborhoods, even even if, you know, the zoning permits them, because they're perceived as being out of keeping with the physical character of the neighborhood because they're not they're mm-hmm. not prevailing. Well, what is prev- that's another buzzword that drives me crazy. What does prevailing mean? How do we define prevailing? 
is mm-hmm. it predominant? Is it like more than 50%? I don't think it is because if I think if it was, we would just simply say that. So we've got these like really ambiguous mm-hmm. terms that we use to describe very prescriptive policies in some cases at the official plan level in Toronto in particular um, that just cause confusion and they leave things open to interpretation and debate. And they've been the subject of countless OMB and now LPAT hearings. And so it's these really ambiguous terms like prevailing or predominant uh, or geographic neighborhood. And, you know, combined with things like uh, prevailing physical character, which are just being used, they're being weaponized, frankly, to to reinforce some existing condition uh, as if to suggest, no, nothing else is appropriate. No, no additional people are welcome here. We like it exactly the way it is and it should never change. And I don't think that that's really at the at the end of the day that those are the intent of those policies. But those are the types of words that leave discussions like, you know, small infill development projects open to a significant amount of debate. Mm-hmm. I was at a, an event recently that, uh, that one of the speakers asked anyone who lives in the yellow belt referring to, you know, the, the neighborhood designation in Toronto to raise their hand and um, not out of shame, but just, um, you know, a, a thinking point of, you know, how many people live where, you know, one, one and two unit dwellings are the only permissible yeah. built form. And um, yeah, you bring up a lot of good points in terms of in terms of those those terms used, but also, you know, like you said, the housing crisis and the need to balance all of these um, competing issues then um, that need to be looked at uh, holistically instead of just neighborhood character, yeah. you know, and it's, yeah. Well, and it's, it's also becomes a question of who's, who's, what interests are we representing and, you know, mm-hmm. and, and how are our policies being framed? Are we, are we valuing the opinions of existing established longtime residents or are we valuing the opinions and perspectives of would-be home buyers? Or are we trying to balance the two? And I would argue currently my major frustration is that I, I feel like, and I don't, I don't blame the city because I don't think that this is intentional, but I, I think because of the way that we notify for public meetings, we, we send out notices within a 120-meter radius of an application, and the way that we conduct our consultation sessions, I think that we get a lot of the older, more established, frankly, wealthier, if dare I say it, Caucasian wealthy people who are living in these neighborhoods, mm-hmm. who have more time on their hands, most of them are retired, dare I say it, many of them are ill-informed and have, you know, predisposed ideas about things. Uh, and, and, and many of their ideas are not necessarily grounded entirely in reality. And they become a very vocal minority. Um, they have a very strong voice. Many of these people belong to residents, associations, and ratepayers groups. You know, they may not represent the majority of opinions, but because they're so vocal and so active, their opinions are heard. And everything that comes out of those consultations is sort of, it's informed by that process. So, you know, that's something else that sort of grinds my gears is just the way that we go about notifying the public for these meetings and the way we go about conducting these meetings because the other thing is that we don't provide food for families during dinner time you know at public mm-hmm. meetings we don't provide alternative dates and times for public meetings it's kind of like a one-stop shop you're there or you're not and if you you're there you've missed the boat you know and you might have an opportunity mm-hmm. to provide you know maybe supplementary feedback in a comment form but you know that's about it and a lot of people don't feel like the process is designed to cater to them it's it's uh it's not inclusive to them 
whether it be young families with children that have to deal with daycare pickup schedules and you know planning you know meals around you know scheduling these events around dinner times for families or whether it be that the fact that so many people that would love to live in these established neighborhoods aren't even notified of these processes and and by virtue of that are, are not really included in the process so these are these are some concerns i have but yeah i i heard of an appeal the other day that you know in in the appeal letter it was just quoting uh you know that they didn't want that they didn't want a certain type of people yeah. living next to them and it was it it was considered a planning issue by the LPAT. So I'm not really sure how those uh, those rules are. The changing rules have really changed in terms of um, who's appealing and who who's really impacting the yeah, process. Yeah, no, you're right. No, that's 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 a, a very good point. I, I haven't seen too much about that. I, I tend not to deal um, too much with development approvals uh, specifically, mm, okay. but um, certainly it's something that I'm sure others could weigh into far better than I can. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so moving on to my next question, if you were a provincial policy document or a piece of legislation or a guideline, or even if it's not a provincial, it's a federal, a municipal, whatever it is, which one would you be and why? Well, my fear is that I would be some sort of, um, you know, broad sweeping urban design guideline document uh, <laughs> applied on a municipal wide scale because I've written so many of them. I feel like I could probably, you know, I don't want to send the wrong message to the, the, the aspiring planning students. It's certainly not a copy-paste job, but it's not as if we're redefining best practices on an ongoing basis um, with every single aspect of every single set of design guidelines. So I've, I've, I, it's some, it's, you know, although we do sort of tailor things and we do sort of specialize our approach and our methodology and for each specific set of design guidelines that we undertake and although it depends on the nature of them and the type of built form that we're looking at or whether or not it's you know a municipal wide study or it's an area specific study or it's something that's specific to a certain building typology or type of district um, even though they are unique I feel like I've done so many of them that if I were to be anything I would probably be destined to be an urban design (laughs) guideline now that's not what I aspire to be um, I like to think of myself as a high level thinking, broad thinking, big ideas guy, um, very rational, um, you know, sort of n- not overly prescriptive in my thinking, but just sort of laying out the general framework. So in my mind, I would be more like a growth plan, like, a you know, the, the guiding like principles the, and yeah, yeah. So I, I, maybe I would be the growth plan for the greater golden horseshoe or, you know, I, I think maybe the PPS is a little too uh, abstract in, in its thinking mm-hmm. for that to really reflect the way that I the, the way that my mind works. But uh, I would probably be the growth plan. Mm-hmm. I would I, I would aspire to be the growth plan. Let's put it that mm-hmm. way. Yeah, you kind of had to psychoanalyze yourself for this question. <laughs> some <laughs> yeah, some <I> introspection. Um, <laughs> what's your favorite uh, favorite field trip memory? Or sorry, mm. sorry, no, that's not the question. Oh yeah, best field trip memory when you were a student, um, or or um, as you mentioned, you know, you you're now a professor or, um, at Ryerson. So if that includes a trip that you've more recently been on, sure. I've got I've got a few. Do you have time for a few? <laughs> yeah, of course. Okay, all right. Um, let's see here. So, I mean, it's been it's been about ten years, eleven years now since I was really a student at Ryerson. Um, I mean, I, I really enjoyed in my fourth year, 
I went uh, with Professor Stephen Weber, went to Philadelphia. I think there was, you know, it was football season or something was happening and there was a lot of football culture there. We reenacted everything related to Rocky, Balboa, <laughs> went to all the museums. We we saw a lot of interesting stuff. We went to um, university campuses like Penn State University campus. Um, we, uh, we saw the old jail downtown. It was a pretty cool trip. And, uh, of course, you know, familiar, familiarized myself with the Philadelphia, uh, steak sandwich, mm. found the original place that served it and great, great bar scene in town and a lot of fun. Uh, and for, and it was fourth year. So we were sort of like adults at that point and had a lot of fun. Then, you know, you're getting to know each other too at that point, you know, Steve, yeah, Stephen, uh, you may not want to admit this, but he also enjoys hanging out with students sometimes. And, <laughs> I think uh, that's I think that's safe to say on the podcast. Everyone yeah, knows yeah. Professor Weber that he's <laughs> we, we love we love Stephen and we love it when he hangs out with us and he should continue to do that. Yeah. And he's a lot of fun. Uh, uh, in my sort of faculty role, I've had, you know, I've gone on three field trips now, um, a trip to Boston, a trip to Ottawa and a trip to Montreal. Um yeah, I mean, I, I earned the title MVP uh, from my students when we went to Boston because our bus got stuck on a driving tour of a very narrow, windy street. Oh, wow. And I had to negotiate. With, there was there was this car that was illegally parked, and because of that, we just couldn't go anywhere. And then we couldn't go backwards because there was like 100 cars behind us. And we physically couldn't turn this bus tight enough to round this corner without nailing this car. So um, I had to get out and help sort of navigate the bus driver to do like literally a 30 point turn around this vehicle. We came within, it had to have been like an inch and a half. Oh my gosh, this sa- I'm just, I'm stressed out thinking about this. It was, highly, it was highly stressful, but my students thought I was awesome. I was like, <laughs> all right, great, save the day. Um, they called me Blazer Blair because I always wear blazers to meetings. Um, yeah, I don't know. We had a lot of fun in Boston. Um, lots of sightseeing. Uh, interesting. I don't know that I would say this is a great memory, but when we were driving back to for, fast forward, uh, you know, a year, we're in Ottawa coming back, and uh, uh, the bus part of the bus flew off or detached <laughs> to the bus on the highway, on the highway, oh, no. and drivers this like elderly guy, and I had to get out, walk like a kilometer and a half down the median of the highway to pick up a panel of the bus and drag it back. So that was memorable. Oh, wow. Um, no good can come of the buses. If David and Borsky tells, you know, the bus driver to take a tight turn in Boston, you tell him, no, that's not a good idea. <laughs> you stick to the major streets. Field trips are always a great time. We had a lot of fun in Ottawa. We, we hung out in the Byward Market area. Lots of great restaurants, lots of, you know, interesting stuff going on. And uh, it, was, it was awesome. Mm-hmm. Good times. I think for the field trips, a key part of that, I think, is is overlooked and that, that a lot of people take out of that. But it just brings everyone closer together in that year. Um, and I think that, that um, those field trips are where a lot of friendships uh, and, you know, relationships are made that continue on after school. Um, That's right. I, Absolutely. Yeah. Right. And I've, uh, yeah, I, fe- I feel like I'm closest um, with the people that I went on the field trips with. You know, you just get you get to hang out with them and get to know them on a more personal level instead of just studio all-nighters. <laughs> that's that's absolutely right. Mm-hmm. No, they're fantastic mm-hmm. for that reason. Um, a couple of my last questions uh, relate to favorite cities. So what's your favorite city mm-hmm. to live in and what's your favorite city to visit? Oh, boy. I mean, I'm pretty limited in what I can actually say. I've only ever lived in... London, Ontario, Toronto, Ontario, and Montreal, Quebec. Um, 
I mean, I, I wouldn't be here in Toronto if I, if I didn't think it was where I was meant to be and where I was meant to work. And, and, and I love this city and I've, I've enjoyed it. I've now spent almost more time in Toronto than I, I spent living in London, almost, almost half my life now. Um, and I wouldn't be here if I didn't love it. Um, I, I'm a recent resident of, of uh, Leslieville, moved here a couple of years ago in the east end of Toronto. I don't think I will leave until I retire. I love it here. It's great. We have more microbreweries <laughs> per square kilometer than any other part of Ontario. It's amazing. Even more than uh, than Hamilton? <laughs> oh, I don't know. Maybe not. I'm not. I'm less familiar with Hamilton. Oh, okay. Maybe I should come visit you. You're down in Hamilton. Yeah, right? there's a lot of breweries. Um, but no, I, I love seeing. Um, I, you know, on the one side, I, I feel guilty be, being a contributor of gentrification, but then mm-hmm. that's quite clearly what's happening in the East End. But it's. Um, it's really interesting to see this neighborhood evolve and come to life. And there's a bit of a, a main street and, you know, even a mid rise Renaissance happening on queen street here. And there's a bustling restaurant scene. There's a lot of activity. It's a great place to live. I mean, would I be potentially happier living other places? Probably. I don't know, but I'm kind of ignorant. Like I've never really lived too many places. I also really loved Montreal for very different reasons. I studied urban design in Montreal and it was the perfect place to study design. And it was also a really interesting place to learn about planning because the problems that they have and that they've experienced historically and the way that they've developed over history is very different from Toronto. And so it was just really interesting to learn about a unique set of circumstances and how they've been addressed. And we take a lot of things for granted in Toronto. We take our growth for granted. And growth is not something that has, you know, since the FLQ crisis in the 1970s and the two referendums that followed, Montreal's economy basically collapsed several times and it's had to reinvent itself. It went from being, you know, the financial center of Canada to having to undergo an urban renaissance and redefine itself as a tourism hub and a cultural destination. And uh, that's taken many years and it's taken a lot of time and money. And uh, but it's but it's amazing to see what Montreal's evolved into. And it also has this really interesting sort of lower Canada um, French, you know, um, influence and it's got a much older, it's got, it, they've done a much better job of preserving their older sort of early to mid 18th century, 19th, or sorry, 19th century building stock, um, which is quite interesting. They've got a, you know, really unique, uh, building typologies in their neighborhoods that we don't really have here in Toronto that I wish we would move more towards like the Montreal triplex, you know, I think it's pretty cool. Um, I don't know. They're very, they're very different cities, and I love them both for very different reasons. And every time I'm in Montreal, I get very nostalgic about it. Um, but I'm always happy to come home to Toronto. I think Toronto feels like home to me. Now, I could see myself going abroad to like Amsterdam and Copenhagen because those are pretty awesome places, um, and those are places that I've traveled. Um, and of the places I've traveled, those are probably the places I could most see myself living: are, are Amsterdam and Copenhagen. I think they're both very livable, interesting cities, um, really good sort of scale. I love their focus on active transportation facilities, very progressive, liberal places. Um, yeah. Also, I love canals. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I've been to Montreal a few times. It's a, it's a beautiful city. And, and like you said, uh, the, the Montreal triplexes and the, and the staircases that are kind of a, a prevalent neighborhood character. Uh, there you go. <laughs> if you were to define it, I think that that would uh... to kind of step away from the kind of my standard questions. Now, I'm interested in learning more kind of how you got into teaching uh, at Ryerson. 
Oh, interesting. Well, Mitch will love this if he's listening. So I never actually had Mitch Gosney as a professor when I was a student. So he didn't, I don't think he really knew me. Like he kind of knew of me, but didn't really know me well. But um, I always got so much out of studio when I was a student. In fact, you know, so Harold Motti was my was my client acting on behalf of the Blue Yorkville BIA. And I had him twice consecutively, which I don't think we would allow today uh, when we organize our studio groups. But uh, Harold was a mentor of mine and I learned a lot from him. And he really solidified my interest in consulting and in urban design. And he wrote me this amazing you know, letter of reference for McGill, which was great. And and I got so much out of studio and I also learned so much from studio that I always said to myself, if I could ever give back to the school and volunteer my time, you know, and, and act as a mentor or a client, I would do it. And uh, so, you know, I had been out of school for several years, you know, five or six years. And and I, it, it sort of thought occurred to me, maybe this is the right time. You know, maybe I could do this. I could take this on. I'm comfortable with my career. I'm sort of at a point where I feel confident enough that I could get involved and, and start to give back a little bit. Um, and so I, I asked Mitch if he'd meet me for coffee and we chatted and he loved the idea. He thought it was awesome. And um, he said, you know, why don't we keep in touch and we'll see where this, how this pans out, where this goes. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll make something work at some point. And, um, you know, it was only a matter of months later, he was organizing his fourth year PLG 720 client-based studio. Uh, and he asked me if I'd be the client. And so I'm like, yeah, are you kidding me? Of course I will. So, so, so I did that and we did a study of, um, of the Junction Triangle neighborhood, sort of like a neighborhood and avenue study. And uh, that was really awesome. It went really well. And we kind of debriefed after and we're like, yeah, that's, that was awesome. Let's do it again. And then the next semester, <laughs> I did it again for one of his grad studios for PL8110. And we did a similar kind of study of Riverside, sort of more of a policy focused study. And, uh, and that went really well. And then, you know, some time went by and I, I emailed Mitch again and I was like, Hey man, you want to get together again for coffee? So we got together again for coffee and I'm like, you know, I like, obviously, you know, there's no, there's no expectation here and there's absolutely no rush in this. And I'm not expecting this as something that's going to happen anytime soon if it does at all. But like, I just wanted to let you know that I really love doing this stuff and I'm happy to continue doing it. Uh, for as long as you know you're interested in, interested in having me do it, but if the offer if the opportunity ever came up for me to teach, um, I would be really open to that. Um, I think it's you know this has sort of been a bit of a test for me to sort of you know test the waters and and see how I I I, I fare in this sort of environment. And I think we both agreed it came kind of naturally to me. And um, so it's like yeah okay so we'll just we'll play it by ear you know we'll see what happens and. And then I think, I think, you know, a semester or two went by and then I got another email from it. She's like, Hey, we need to submit, uh, you know, the contract lecturers got to submit, uh, their request for, for, uh, courses, uh, by mid May. Are you interested? We've got potentially an opening. And I said, yeah, awesome. I'll do it. So, um, I submitted, I submitted my application and, you know, the next semester in the fall, uh, I was teaching PLG 520 and, that went really well. I got some really good feedback and then asked to, I was asked to resubmit again the next year. So I submitted it again next year. I got PLG 520 and I think PLG 620. So I taught one course in the fall, one in the winter. And it's kind of built from there. So like fast forward five years, I teach, I now teach PLG 520, 620, 720, PLA 
110 and one of the field trip courses. The number changes any given year, but it's either third or fourth year field trip. Wow. So that's, that's amazing. how it happened. Yeah. And I was a little bit shocked um, uh, as to how quickly it happened because I, I, I think at the time I was the youngest person doing any of the part-time faculty stuff. I may still be. I don't actually know. Um, there's a couple other young-ish people like me. Um, but uh, yeah, if anything, uh, I've, t I've taken on I've taken on a lot now, and I, 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 I need to maybe you know I, I need to sort of draw <laughs> draw a, bit of a, a hypothetical line and just sort of say, okay, I thou shalt not take on any more <laughs> teaching requirements. Yeah. But uh, it's and it's and I only say that because it's a lot of work. It's a ton of work. But I wouldn't do it if I didn't loved it. If I didn't love it, and I absolutely love it. Um. And and this isn't why, but added bonus, I've I've now made back all the money I spent on university to begin with. Amazing. There you go, right? Yeah. I tricked them. I tricked them into giving it back. Yeah. To no, that's yeah. amazing. It's great how um, it just happens kind of organically that you didn't set out to you know oh I want to teach at Ryerson, but just um, you know a series of of events and moments that and opportunities that um, were in yeah. front of you that you took and 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 here you are. That's that's great. And and you. And you know what? I, I think that's that's an excellent way of putting it. And honestly, I define personally, I define a, a lot of whatever I can claim to be success in my life to those sorts of things, to unique opportunities and challenges that you just sort of have to capitalize on at the time they come your way. And you just need to sort of you need to do something with them. Um, and I, I, I bet a lot of people would say something like that. Um, you know, it's, it, you don't necessarily go out seeking all these things and you don't necessarily even know that you want to do these things sometimes, but sometimes opportunities come your way and not to say every one of them is the right fit for you, but you know, every now and then something great will come your way and it's worth jumping on it. Yeah. I listen. Uh, I listened to this uh, podcast, this NPR podcast called how I built this. And it's, uh, it's this guy who interviews entrepreneurs and business owners. And one of the big questions he always asks is how much of your success or how much of where you are right now in life was, was luck and how much of it was, you know, hard work and grit. Um, and it's always it's always interesting um, hearing those uh, hearing those answers. What would what would you say to that? Oh boy, um, it's it's a real combination of things. I I think I'm a pretty lucky person. Uh, honestly, I've I've been incredibly fortunate to have um, many things come my way. Um, at the same time, I, sort of the, the flip side of that is I I also have always been somebody who sort of, as I said earlier, had a sense of what I want to do with my life and kind of set my mind to something. And so I, I set high-level goals like that. And I, I'm always sort of looking at the next thing and what is the next thing. And and I generally have an idea of what that is, you know, a few years in advance of me getting there. And it's not to say that, you know, I manifest everything that I that I dream up by any stretch of the imagination. But I my, my life beyond my career, as well as my career, has been driven largely by, you know, a, a, a way of sort of, proactively imagining what that thing is and going after it, you know, and, and finding the appropriate way of going it after it and, and, and the appropriate time to go after it. Um, you know, and that's not to say I, I get everything I want. I certainly don't, you know, I, I, I've, 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 I've been turned down for job interviews, you know, that things that I would have loved to have had and, and this and that, and, you know, things don't always work out the way that we think originally, but, but in a way, things do kind of work out. Mm -hmm. uh, they have a way of working out. And um, even, so I guess all that to say, you know, for you aspiring planning 
graduates um, looking for your first job, this is something that that a lot of people ask of me. You know, don't don't get hung up on that first job necessarily being that that perfect job, that long term job. It may not be the case, uh, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I think it's it's important just to set goals for yourself and to remind yourself periodically who you are, what you stand for, what you're interested in, and have a sense of what steps you need to take to get from where you are to where you want to go. And there will be challenges along the way. There always are. But in the end, uh, that's an approach that's worked well for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, kind of to, to echo that, one of my um, personal mentors at the time of, of me graduating, um, looking for that, you know, that perfect job, that that job in the planning field that I wanted. And then her advice to me was um, just have have things that you're not willing you're not willing to um to negotiate on or that you're not willing to compromise on. And, and those are, you know, issues of, of morality. So one of them was, um, right. you know, to work for a boss that I respected. And so, you know, it didn't have to specifically be in the planning field, but um, I ended up getting a job in the planning field. But when when you're kind of faced with those decisions, it's it's uh, like you said, you know, you have to figure out who the, who you want to be and, and make decisions based on on that. Well, thank you so much for uh, for your time and for for being uh, willing to interview for the Planorama podcast. <laughs> it's my pleasure. Thanks for asking me, Ashley. I hope you enjoyed listening to my chat with Blair. Stay tuned for the next episode. 